Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Hello and welcome to the program for December 13, 2022, or in the Hebrew calendar, the 19th of Kislev. 5783. I am Walter Bingham, and today I discuss the hot potato of sovereignty. Should it be now, and if not, when? Is it at all possible in the current political climate in the world, or should we just ignore that and go ahead? You will also hear views on Israel's Supreme Court, and more. But I begin with this. The time is running out for Netanyahu to succeed in forming a right-wing government. The law provides for the president to extend the time limit for another 14 days, and if Netanyahu would be unable to get all his ducks in a row, the president can nominate another Knesset member, usually from an opposition party, to try and form a government. It is, of course, not a given that such an extension would be granted if the president believes that no further progress would be made. This would be Israel's finest missed opportunity to finally formulate the policy fitting a Jewish state. In last week's program, I've already discussed the shameful behavior of the right-wing religious party leaders whose negotiations do not only give the impression of fighting for influence of their parties, as they would as have believed, but who actually show that their personal power and ministerial position is to them more important than working in a united government to achieve the formulation of laws that guarantee the state of Israel to function with Jewish values. On the one hand, Israel strives to be a modern and Western-oriented country. On the other hand, it seems that it's the Middle Eastern culture that pervades and dominates proceedings here. In other words, instead of formulating the government of like-minded people and then talk about the laws, to be legislated, it's the other way around. Let's first make sure that this law and that law will be legislated before I join with you in government. That's why it takes so long for Netanyahu to need an extension before coming to an agreement, and then it is not at all certain. Unfortunate at this time, while I'm preparing this program, the future of our long-awaited right-wing government seems also to depend on whether the convicted fraudster Arya Derry, leader of the Shash party, is legally allowed to become a minister. The unreasonable demand by the Shash party to amend the regulations is, as I see it, the determining factor whether the country will establish a right-wing Netanyahu government or revert to the dictates of Arab parties. That, of course, is a question that should not even have arisen. Convicted criminals cannot be a role model for the country. If Derry had an ounce of character and decency and love for Israel, he would drop his demand and let Netanyahu go forward. 
So for failure of negotiations, the blame would rest squarely on the Shash party. There is just one more open question. Will Netanyahu surrender to the demands in order to become prime minister? Only he knows. I get depressed by it all. Now I feel better. It is remarkable that among the numerous territorial conflicts that have sprung up since the end of World War II, it is Israel and its local Arab population that has occupied most newspaper columns and TV footage and is still doing so. But more than that, UN organizations concerned with the welfare of the underprivileged the refugees and human rights abuses spend more of their time about Israel, to be precise on Israel's Arabs, than on all other urgent problems combined. While all the world's refugees are dealt with by the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Arabs who left this country or were displaced during 1948 in the Israel War of Liberation are registered to this day as refugees by a specially established organization for their care, UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, and so are all their subsequent generations that have long settled in other lands. By the way, the U.S. recently prides itself to be the largest donor. By contrast, some 650,000 Jews who lived in Middle Eastern countries and North Africa, whose life was made hell following the establishment of the Jewish state and who had to leave, were left without official support. The similar number of Arab refugees who left during 1948 are now counted by UNRWA to have multiplied and are approaching 6 million and claim funds accordingly. I mention these matters as examples of the double standard that the international community applies. The Jewish State of Israel was officially established by vote of the United Nations on the basis of the Balfour Declaration as a homeland for the Jewish people, a declaration which itself rested on the grounds of our millennia-long connection to this land, even going back to biblical times. There were, of course, always Arabs living here, mainly as Bedouins and in few small centers like Nablus, Janine and Bethlehem, but the bulk arrived from poor Middle Eastern and North African countries, even from the Aegean Islands, when the early Jewish immigration and the subsequent British garrison created work. Today, they claim to be Palestinians with an ancient national history. That claim of the modern Arab national movement in Israel as being the Palestinian indigenous nation with exclusive rights to this land has no foundation at all. It was the figment of the imagination of the ambitious Egyptian activist Yasser Arafat who exploited the long-standing Arab hate of the Jewish establishment in Eretz Israel and in 1964 formed it into a Palestinian political movement with great effect. Unfortunately, successive Israeli governments looked idly by, while the now Palestinians understood how to publicize their claim to gain international recognition. Today the genie is out of the bottle, and we have to be firm to assert our right. 
Our judges have demonstrated the truth of the Midrash, the ancient rabbinic interpretation of scripture by our sages, Midrash Tanhuma Metzora Siman 1, that Rabbi Elazar said, anyone who becomes merciful upon the cruel will end up by being cruel to the merciful. In other words, the charge directed at the government is that it does not subdue terrorism resolutely and even surrenders to terrorism by agreeing to conduct diplomatic negotiations with terrorist organizations, even while under fire, while rockets are landing, encouraging additional terrorism. The utilization of the rabbinic ism cited in this contemporary context is that he, the government, who acts compassionately, in other words, benevolently, towards cruel people, none other than the various terrorist functionaries, ultimately will become cruel to the general public, which is forced to pay the price of additional casualties for the government's irresolute behavior. The compassionate in this saying, in its practical application, is therefore the general public, for whom compassion to the cruel is cruelty towards them. Ever since that day in November 1947, when UN Resolution 181 called for the partition of Palestine into a Jewish and Arab state, that was accepted by the Jewish leadership, the opposition to the Jewish presence in our ancient homeland began. In Israel today, there is a very large movement that is active in preventing the idea that this Arab minority is entitled to establish itself as an independent Muslim state, occupying a part of Israel. It's worth mentioning that there are already 22 Muslim states in the world, and so much talk of religious tolerance. Is there no justification for one Jewish state? Among the growing grassroots sectors of the population that is dissatisfied with the hesitant policies of previous governments to normalize the absurd administrative situation that obtains in large parts of Israel's heartland is the sovereignty movement, headed by Nadia Matar and Judith Katzover, arguably the most influential people's organization on the political scene. I hope to bring you a report about their work in the near future. And while on the theme of double standards, here is a segment of a previous program, Updated. There have been many plans on the table about sovereignty, and the discussion in the country now centers around which plan, or if at all. Should we annex part of Judea and Samaria, or even all of it, as well as the Jordan Valley, in fact, establish the state of Israel to extend from the river to the sea. Here is an analysis of the situation as I see it and published it in the Jerusalem Post. High on the list of topics in Israel and one of the most discussed subjects in diplomatic circles of the world is Israel's proposed and imminent extension of sovereignty over additional parts of our country. This is perceived by most of the international community as depriving Palestinian Arabs of their land, illegal under international law, 
and making it impossible to establish a contiguous Palestinian state in the West Bank. There is, however, a great deal of confusion as to the precise extent of this proposed sovereignty. A variety of options have been suggested, depending on the political affiliation of the proposer. First and foremost, after a prolonged period of hype, there is the Trump deal of the century, promising Israel's sovereignty in Judea and Samaria. Besides the so-called major settlement blocks, the map that has been published shows a confusing array of dots and dashes representing a number of isolated Jewish villages to be included in the plan, while an estimated up to 25 smaller communities are doomed to be destroyed. This adds up to just 30% and is effectively severing 70% of Judea and Samaria to become a Palestinian state. Not the deal that the Israeli public was led to believe, but a scheme aimed to appease Palestinian demands. Further, it merely serves to fulfill the aspirations of US President Trump to achieve peace between Israel and the Palestinian Arabs, a feat that no one before him could accomplish. In the end, his plan for Middle East peace, like all others before him, ended up in the dustbin of history. It was surprisingly naive to believe that the Palestinian Authority leadership would freely accept a plan that places Israeli towns and villages as islands under Israeli sovereignty dotted within what is earmarked for a Palestinian state. Our interlocutors have already condemned this plan because, firstly, they claim that it prevents contiguity and free movement within their state, and secondly, that they will never tolerate Israelis within their sovereign area. That's a condition often repeated by Mahmoud Abbas. Yet Arabs reside and move freely inside Israel. In any case, the Palestinian Arabs' demands are much wider. Within Israel, there is division and debate if it is politically and diplomatically advisable to implement any extension of sovereignty at this time in light of strong international opposition and warnings by even the warm Arab states that such action will severely harm the relationship. Therefore, as neither the Palestinian Authority nor the Arab countries in the region will accept that kind of Palestinian state, the Trump plan is dead. Netanyahu is facing a dilemma. There is a considerable constituency even within his own ranks requesting him to nevertheless declare sovereignty according to the plan. I'm not sure if it's the Trump plan or his plan. Jeff Barak, former Jerusalem Post editor and seasoned journalist, asks in a piece in the paper, if Israel has survived and prospered for over 50 years without annexation, what's the rush? Well, if we will ask Nadia Matar or Yehudit Katzover, today's leaders of Women for Israel's Tomorrow, a grassroots movement known as Women in Green, and the Sovereignty Movement, they will tell him that precisely because we have already waited so long, in the hope that a solution would be found, it's now time to end that illusion that peace can be achieved by giving up yet more 
of our homeland and establish another country within it, and that Eretz Israel, La Am Israel, that the land of Israel belongs to the people of Israel according to the biblical promise made by God to the Jewish people. More secular supporters who advocate for total annexation from the river to the sea base their claim on the resolution of the Balfour Declaration of 1917 and the San Remo Conference of 1920 and the recognition of the State of Israel by 162 member states of the United Nations. The Balfour Declaration was a public statement issued by the British government in 1917 announcing support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, then still part of the Ottoman region. The declaration was contained in a letter dated 2nd of November 1917 from the United Kingdom's Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour to Lord Rothschild, a leader of the British Jewish community, for transmission to the Zionist Federation of Great Britain and Ireland. The text of the declaration was published in the press on November the 9th, 1917. The San Remo Conference, which was convened three years later to decide the future of the former territories of the Ottoman Turkish Empire, one of the defeated central powers in World War I, resolved and specifically noted that the mandate for Palestine will be responsible for carrying out the Balfour Declaration, working for the establishment of the Jewish national home without prejudice to the rights of existing non-Jewish communities. There was no mention of an independent Palestinian state. The San Remo and Balfour declarations refer to Palestine as the area which included today's Kingdom of Jordan. Those who class the Balfour Declaration as merely a letter of intent have to be reminded that the full text of the Declaration became an integral part of the San Remo Resolution and the British Mandate for Palestine, therefore transforming it into a legally binding foundational document under international law. It is also important to note that there has never been an Arab state in Palestine. Its Arab inhabitants have always considered themselves to be part of the great Arab nation historically and politically and as an integral part of Greater Syria, a designation that extended to both sides of the Jordan River. Under the headline The Myth of a Palestinian People, already on the 15th of June 1969, the Sunday Times wrote, There is no such thing as Palestinians. When was there an independent Palestinian people with a Palestinian state? It was either southern Syria before the First World War, and then it was a Palestine including Jordan. It was not as though there was a Palestinian people in Palestine considering itself as a Palestinian nation, and then we came and threw them out and took their country away from them. They did not exist. And one day later, on the 16th of June 1969, the Washington Post wrote exactly the same piece. The 1916 Asia Minor Agreement, commonly known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement, named after its British and French negotiators, made a mess of the area between parts of Turkey, Iraq, Lebanon, the Persian Gulf and the Mediterranean Sea by dividing it arbitrarily 
into administrative zones regardless of religious or tribal considerations of which the western part was one of the sections given to Britain. That was the creation of what we today know as the troubled Middle East. Taking all that into consideration, the Jews with trimillennial history in this land, now the modern state of Israel, have an indisputable right to the area between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. The question is, what will the consequences be following a total annexation of Judea and Samaria and the Jordan Valley? Would it be better to take what we can today and kick the can down the road hoping to annex more another time, as is the view of some Israelis, or to annex all and face the music? It is certain that even by implementing any plan there will be the strongest international condemnation, maybe even threats of trade embargoes and isolation. We may have to expect that or alternatively surrender to pressures and intimidation that will never change and set a precedent forever. To believe that we could ever recover from such a mistake is, as Nadia Mata would say, an illusion. The uproar of the international opposition would be no stronger and no louder if we were to take courage and once and for all extend sovereignty over the whole of our land, from the river to the sea, as it would be by annexing piecemeal. The choice is either total annexation or face the same music each time we make an adjustment, even if only to build a road. The eminent lawyer Alan Dershowitz reminds us that Menachem Begin said, and I quote, Israel should never be concerned that acting in its best interests will cause the loss of some congressman's support. Israel has thousands of years of persecution in its history and does not need to answer to anyone. There is no substitute for being strong. Israel is strong enough in every respect to overcome these temporary disagreements with the international community. Countries' long-term interests, such as to benefit from Israel's developments in science and technology, determine their policy and will overcome any pressure to prevent the return to the status ante, said Dershowitz. So, future Prime Minister Netanyahu used this window of opportunity to ensure your historic legacy to have completed what Menachem Begin started and established the final borders of the State of Israel from the river to the sea, that we don't have to wait for Mashiach. I would like to have your view, so please write to walter.israelnationalradio at gmail.com where you will always get my personal reply or place your comments on the appropriate place somewhere under the Walter's World page where I shall see it and perhaps even reply. And now I want to quote from an article by David Isaac in World Israel News. Israel's Supreme Court appears to be on a mission to erase any doubts within the Israeli public that it's been corrupted by politics. End of quote. That has been evident in very many of their judgments about disputes between Palestinian Arabs and their Jewish neighbors, as well as in legal disagreements with the decisions of our legislators in the Knesset. We hear almost every week of indictments or judgments that have political undertones, 
there was the case of Mitzbeck Ramim, a Jewish settlement on a hilltop in Samaria. It was established in 1999 and under close supervision of the Justice Ministry and houses some 40 families. The Supreme Court ordered the evacuation because it is claimed to be on Arab land. I argued in an earlier program that there is confusion on which law the Arab claims are based. The 120-year-old Ottoman law? Surely that cannot apply to our state. Or under the Jordanian law on the basis of which, while Jordan illegally occupied the so-called West Bank between 1948 and 1967, they illegally distributed parcels of land to Arabs in contravention of the fact that the 1948 British withdrawal in favor of the Jewish state meant that the land became Jewish state land, and that the old Ottoman law and illegal Jordanian law are void. I believe that therefore there can be no legitimate Arab claim on our land. Of course, Israel does not exercise ethnic cleansing. So, taking a pragmatic view, their villages and a reasonable proportion of agricultural land will remain in their hands. But their illegal expansion must be halted and uncultivated hills must be legally available for Jewish settlement. The fact that the court unusually allowed three years during which the order to evacuate Mitzbekamin may be executed is a sign that they provided time for extensive appeals, which to me means that they may have doubts about their judgment. The Netanyahu wrote, I regret the mistaken High Court of Justice decision on the evacuation of Mitzbekamim. We will exhaust all processes in order to leave the residents in their place and we are convinced that we will succeed. The High Court showed that the judgments are not blind but politically motivated. It is unbelievable that Arab construction is allowed to run wild in the area of the so-called West Bank, including Area C, which is under full Israeli control, with the authorities slow to act or tolerating it. Yet at the same time, the authorities show zero tolerance to Jewish construction or settlement expansion. There are numerous cases in recent months and years when it seemed that according to our courts, personal sidearms carried by licensed Jewish civilians are for decoration only. In too many cases, their discharge for self-defense, even aiming high, has been interpreted as unjustified and the holder was brought before the court and found guilty, while the Arab who threatened him was looked upon as the victim, although he was not targeted. Only video evidence could change the verdict. Another example of biased judgment. Yet the court prevented a lawful military order to destroy the home of the terrorist who murdered IDF soldier Sergeant Amit Benigal from being destroyed. The reason was that it would hurt the family, who, so they said, had no part in the murder. I wonder how they know. As I understood it, this argument can be applied in every case where the murderer lives with his family, 
and that deterrent is now removed. Caroline Glick noted that according to a poll in the Globe's newspaper, 72% of Israelis believe police and state prosecutors engage in selective law enforcement. It would not be difficult to list a lot more cases. Then there are many documented instances where the High Court assumed the powers of a legislator and overturned laws legally legislated by the Knesset. I repeat again, it is high time for the wings of the High Court to be clipped. I am Walter Bingham and I hope to be with all of you again next week. In the meantime, have a wonderful week and of course make it also one for your elderly neighbour. In many parts of the Northern Hemisphere, snow, ice and the cold may prevent the elderly from going out. They'll be so happy if you could drop in and have a chat with them and also see if they are warm enough. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candlelighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.